This is Serena Catani with OWC Radio. I have Liz Shaw on the line. I cannot tell you how many awards this man has won, how many groundbreaking music projects he's been involved with, and I have been doing some research also in prep for this interview, and I, I there's just so much. Liz, welcome. I've been reading about you. I've been listening to some of your work, and uh, you have an amazing history. So how you. are you? How are you? What's going on today? I'm doing good. I, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here, Serena. And today, um, you know, I don't know what, what date this airs, but in Nashville, it's just gorgeous outside. Uh, the summer has landed here. I think we just had the summer equinox and um, every morning is beautiful and you can mow your lawn till nine o'clock at night. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'm in San Diego and it's also nice. The hummingbirds are flying around the feeders, but I talked to a friend of mine in Berlin this morning, it's 104 degrees there. Well, so. it, it, that is hot. Yeah. That is hot. It, it'll get close to there at some point this summer. But, but I don't, you know, we, we'll just, just lick over 100 degrees when it's, when it's hot summer here. So you just came back, I don't know, it's recently from Bonnaroo, where you were running the Hay Bale Studios. Can you tell people what Bonnaroo is? And yeah. I, I love what you did with the double wide. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. So so this was actually my 15th year doing that. And the Bonnaroo Festival is a, is a, a festival of about 80,000, you know, um, uh, ticket, uh, you know, concert goers. And then you probably have like another 20, I'm sure, on top of that of, of staff and everything. So you got 100,000 people who descend on Manchester, Tennessee and you know, at the beginning of this thing, at the birth of this thing, they basically just found a farm there that would let them start doing kind of a jam band festival. And then over the the 15 to 17 years, something that they've been running the festival, um, eventually they just bought all this land. So they're just, just I, I don't even know the exact number. It's so many acres of land down there that just belongs to this festival. And once a year for about a week, it becomes like a city. I mean, it's bigger than the town that it's hosted in. Um, but this year, I got a great statistic from somebody, and they said, well, when you're in front of the center stage, you're looking at the big stage at a band, um, the the furthest away campsite is two and a half miles. That's what somebody told me. Whoa. So that's how big this place is. And it's just massive, massive campgrounds of people, and then um, there's this area called Centeru, which is the uh, which is where all the stages are. And there's a huge stage, and the stages are um, kooky names like the what stage and the which stage <laughs> and that tent and this tent and the other tent. Um, and so it's just it's intentionally created so that you kind of uh, that's how I feel when I go into a mall. I'm just lost, you know. So <laughs> the festivals like that, and, and it's it's just music. It's just a hundred plus bands playing over four days on all these stages just round the clock you could if you don't want to sleep you could just stay up and it's you know dance djs and parties and um for a while they had a, a 24 7 movie theater going and a comedy tent and and there's just food and people and uh, out out in the campground areas they'll have mini concerts and surprise shows i think the the band paramore played a surprise unannounced concert out in one of the campground. Wow. You know, they'll have these like um, pavilions out there. So it's really an amazing, amazing place. That's so much fun. I'm going next year for sure. <laughs> I was looking at all the campgrounds and there, there are some amazing food being barbecued and cooked. And it's, uh, it's camping like you don't expect, I think, a lot of camping. It it's pretty cool. And I've seen your videos of you, you know, traveling to the Amazon to make films. So you'd probably and, and sleeping in tents there. I bet I bet you'd be very comfortable at Bonnaroo. Absolutely. But I'm thinking maybe I'll drive across country because I can put my camping equipment in the car and then I can shoot on the way, making a real adventure. I think I just might do that. But, you know, I, I was looking at the way you set up the, the trailer that you have. You do in music, I think the equivalent of what I do, field production for, for films. You you do uh, remote recording for your clients, and one of which is the Bonnaroo. So tell us about this hay bale studio. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so um, like I say, 15 years ago, I got invited to come down there. Um, and this was 
by a guy who had put together kind of a radio station compound down there. So he had created this media area where radio stations could come from around the country and be present at the festival during the weekend. Um, and then the bands would have a one-stop shop to come do interviews and, you know, hit all the media and do all their press all at once. And so he said, Hey, you know, here's the budget. Uh, do you think you can come down and set up an actual recording studio on site and then just record all the artists that we can book to come in and we'll do interviews and you record a few songs with them and everything. And so in the same way that when a band travels to another city, let's say a band's going to go play in um, San Diego and, and they get there at five in the morning, they go to the radio station first, play a few songs, talk about their upcoming show and then go play the show. This is a chance for a band to do that in one stop right at Bonnaroo and come in and record three songs with me and then go do a series of interviews. And then they've sort of lined up all this press for their, their summer tour, for example. So we would have, we set up a, a recording studio inside a double wide trailer. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, at this point this year, we, we took down a 15 foot U-Haul, um, just loaded up with, drum sets and bass amps and guitar amps and, and acoustic and electric guitars and keyboards and then all the recording gear that you need to run a studio with headphones and and a, even a mastering engineer and he brings down his rig and it takes me and four other guys about a good eight day stretch of just you know uh, butt busting work getting everything set up because um, I think like you do with your, your film shoots, you have to set everything up and you have to lay it all out and see what you've got, mm -hmm. make sure everything works. And then very carefully, don't mix it up with the stuff that's staying back at the, in your house or whatever and pack it all up so that when you get on to this location, you know, you've got everything you need. And so we'll do that here at my studio first. We'll spend a full day connecting and hooking up all the gear. Um, and at the, at the early days, a full day was barely enough time to even do that. And now a uh, combination of, you know, knowing a whole lot more about what we need and then just the technology has made things a little bit smaller and a little more portable. And we've, we've sort of gone from analog to digital in 15 years. Um, and now, now we can definitely get a full day, a full studio set up here in a day and get everything all packed up. And then the next day we pack up, drive down. Then the next day we set it all back up there. And then for four days, we'll record up to 40 bands. I didn't know that you brought your own drum sets and everything. Because I was wondering how the bands would get in, set up, get out. You know, uh, do some of them ask you, wait a minute, I want to use my own drums? Or are they yeah. know you by now, right? How yeah, do well, they feel we, about we, that? I'll tell you what's really tough is when a, a band comes in and it turns out to be a lefty drummer. Because oh. we've already got a drum set set up with mics on it. We have to pull everything out, re, you know, do like a, a horizontal flip of the whole drum kit and then reconnect all the mics and do that. Uh, but we've done it. We've done it before and we'll do it again. And then, you know, you just have to be really flexible. I'll tell you, one of the rules that I tell all my assistants and my interns, one of the first things I teach them is don't tape down that wire. Yeah. As soon as you make something permanent. That's the moment we're going to have to change it. We went through that at NAB. We set everything up. It took us all day, came in the next morning, and some things in the background had moved, and we had a terrible shot. So uh, I wanted to just move one of the chairs over by a couple of feet, but it meant that everything had to be pulled apart and re-taped. Re it was, yeah, I understand what you mean. Also, I think it's awesome you bring your own equipment and you don't rent a lot because you have to set up ahead of time, right? You, you oh, have yeah. to set up. But back to the Haybale Studio. So tell us about the sound installation. Oh, yeah, right. So um, it was the very first year and uh, Sean O'Connell, who, who founded this thing, um, we were, I went down there ahead of time to go have a conversation with him and sort of uh, prep the site and take a look at it before I brought the studio down. Because um, Manchester is an hour away from Nashville. So it's just far enough to need everything right there on the on site with you. But it's also close enough that if it was a true emergency, you could probably figure something out, you know, have somebody else drive down. But anyway, I went down to go um, 
take a look at the site and he's looking around. He's like, it's going to be like this. The big stage is over there. They're pretty huge sound systems. Are you going to be soundproofed in there enough? And we were like, geez, I don't know. Um, so then he thought, you know, I was just passing by. There was a farmer that was over there. And I wondered if we could just buy a whole bunch of bales of hay from him and then just kind of stack them up around the outside of the studio. Would that help? And I, and I was like, that's genius. <laughs> so so we did that the first year. And then from then on for 15 years, we've always done that. And we've we've actually included more and more hay. They've, we've actually gotten more advanced with our tech of how to stack hay around a studio <laughs> efficiently and completely soundproof it. And now you uh, walk in, it looks like a huge stack of hay bales, this big, long um, brick of hay bales. And then there's uh, stairs going up and two doors coming out the side. And you walk in the door and close it and you're in there and it's just quiet. I mean, you could, you could hear a little bit. And if they put the big, you know, we had Cardi B was on a stage this this year that was maybe, you know, 400 feet from the studio, 300 feet, something like that. Oh, wow. So once that gets kicking, it can get a little tricky. But usually those big shows don't start till the night so, and we'll record during the day. But so for 15 years, it's just been known as the Hay Bale Studio at Bonnaroo. You're going to have to put hay bales underneath it to keep the vibrations away from Party P, right? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> the funny thing is we um, the, the trailer is up, so there's a sort of a crawl space under there. And early on, there was a year where a skunk was seen getting, it went oh, under no. there and it was, it was like a hideout. Cause it was like the skunks thinking like, what the hell is going on? There's 80,000 people in my forest, <laughs> you know? And so it's trying to escape. So it escaped to living under there. And, um, and then I think finally it went away and luckily it didn't like, you know, it didn't let us know it was there and, uh, with the skunk smell, it didn't blast us. But um, but so we've had this. The skunk has been our mascot for the studio, and so every year I print up T-shirts for the Haybell Studio, and they have just a this proud Bonnaroo skunk on top. Oh, that's awesome! Also turns out to be the our our band's mascot from my band from thirty years ago. So it was a good tie-in for me. Oh, that's awesome! It's fate. It's fate. <laughs> it is indeed. You have to have a mascot, I think. Yeah, you do. I, I think I need one for OWC Radio. We have to pick a mascot. I was listening to some of the recordings that you did with the Hay Bale Studios, um, Magnetic Zeros, and just sort of, sort of yeah, going through the yeah. website and listening. The sound is amazing. Thank it's you. really beautiful. So there we are in this double-wide air-conditioned trailer with with hay bales everywhere. I'm Italian, so every once in a while I talk and I hit the mic. <laughs> Can't oh, help sorry, it. <laughs> I do that sometimes too. I talk with my hands even when I'm in front of the mic. Can you talk to us about the workflow inside the space? Sure. So um, first thing we'll do, so we'll have a band uh, every hour is sort of the goal. This year was was a light schedule. We had a, a light schedule of only 22 bands in the studio. Um, but a, a band will show up at the top of the hour. I welcome them at the door. Hey, what do you guys got? They come in and we uh, they see what we've got and we just immediately figure out what they're going to need and where to position them. And I'll tell you, it's been an, a really interesting learning experience for me because um, it's almost like the the world conspires to make it way more complicated than it needs to be. So you get people sending you, they'll send us a stage plot beforehand and it looks like the most complicated thing in the world and they need 40, you know, 50 inputs from all these different things and none of them look like they would even fit in the studio. And I've learned to just kind of take that and just kind of like, okay, I'll just set it down. Looks good. So really that's only four people. Okay, we can handle four people, you know. <laughs> and uh, and then they'll show up and then they come in and and they'll say like, oh, well, so-and-so's on this and drums and bass and guitar. And then he's going he's to play banjo, fiddle, and he's uh, acoustic. And we're going to need, you know, and they're listing all this stuff off. And then there's like, so-and-so's going to sing. And I'm like, all right, listen. Um, <laughs> so how many people are in the band? Okay, it's only four people. Okay, great. So it sounds like 20, but it's only four. And then, you know, you're going to need one mic and you can just use that to play all those instruments. Okay. Oh, that's much more simple, you know, and, and let's see who's going to sing the vocals. And then you want to find out who's going to sing the lead vocals in the background. Cause you know, we have a different mic that we'll use for the number one lead singer and we have something different for the background singers. And, um, 
you know, then the other question is like, is the drummer really going to sing on this or is he just going to have a mic that's sitting there the entire time that's ruining my drum sound? And he just kind of goes like, (laughs) that's true. And that's all he ever actually (laughs) sings on a song. You know, so you kind of you kind of narrow that down pretty quickly. And then you're like, oh, cool. So we just need uh, it's really just two guitars, bass, drums and four vocal mics. And you're singing the lead. Okay, cool. And then we will we'll have them positioned and set up in about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and they start warming up on their instrument and and they say, oh, I can't hear myself. And I'm like, well, hang tight. So I'm, I'm still trying to get levels on everything. And once I have levels, then you'll hear yourself in the headphones because that's where that's where the sound's coming from. And I like to mix it while the band is performing, um, which I think anybody who's done audio, video, um, I'm sure other creative endeavors too, understands that the real time killer in something is post-production. So the more that you can be prepared in advance and the, the more that you can get done in that moment that you're actually performing, the, the, the better results you can get um, and the, the more productive you can be, you know. Whereas if you, if you save th- a whole bunch of stuff for later, then it, it sort of like amplifies the amount of work by, t- by 10 or exponentially or whatever. It does, but you can do that because you're really good at this too. A lot of people couldn't. I don't think a lot of people could think on their feet the way you do, you know. They want to wait so they can think about it and listen to 20 tracks and mix it down and then have a go at it when nobody's in the room. But um, I like I like the idea that you do it live because you're capturing the performance. And that also means your music is in sync with them, right? Your inner music yeah. is going at the same time. So you get yeah. that rhythm going and you're one with the band, right? I know yeah, they must love it. That's absolutely right. And I appreciate your comment. Um, but truthfully, you know, I can only do that now and do it well because I went through the initial steps of, you know, years ago of of spending too much time on it, trying to sort it out later. And then right. I got a little bit better. And then you take risks and you start, you know, stepping in and saying, I'm going to try doing something now. If I screw it up, maybe I can go back and fix it, but I'll, but I'll go for it now. But I'll, I will have the band in there um, and they'll start performing and I'm in a pair of headphones. So um, I will mix on a you know console, whether it's a, a smaller digital one like we take now, or whether it's a big you know thirty-two channel analog mixing console that took four people to carry into the studio. Uh, I'll mix it while the band's performing, so it really is a conversation. It's it's the band does something, I ride the level according to what they're doing. You know, I'll throw in effects and reverbs and delays and, you know, tap the delay time and sync with the the music while the band's playing it. And all that stuff adds up so that we're all performing this thing together. So you really have to have your head in the game and you've got to be in performance mode or it's not going to, you know, you're not going to be able to, you know, if a band's trying to perform well and you're just kind of phoning it in. That's not a good combination. No, it's not going to work. Yeah, but the, but that allows me to mix it while the band's actually performing, and I've never heard the song before. I just say, "What's the title of the first song?" Okay, great, we're ready for you. And you hope you just hope to God that like you know the vocals are loud enough for the first verse, um, and and it goes goes to the back of the room, and our mastering guy records records it, and then he'll master it right away, and then it's ready for radio and within the hour. So talk to me about some of the groups that you had this year at Bonnaroo in Hay Bale. Um, well, I'll tell you one um, artist that came in that was really great to add to the list was uh, Steve Earle, who's been, um, you know, he's a he's a famous singer and songwriter here uh, in Nashville, has been making records for many, many years. Um, he's even had an acting career. I saw him um, in a wonderful TV series called The Wire. Years ago when mm. I watched that, he mm-hmm. he was one of the characters. Um, and then we we had a number of other bands. Um, and you know what? Honestly, I probably have to go look at my band list. I, I've recorded so many hundreds of bands over the years that, that I forget the names often unless I'm actually looking at it. You're as bad as I am. People ask me what movies I've worked on, and I, and I have to think for a minute. you know, or Or they'll say, oh, you worked on this, and I go... You're right. I forgot about that. Well, I I know that uh, when I was 
researching you and going through the hay bale side, I listened to Magnetic Zeros, Father John Misty, Passion Pit, oh, yeah. John Oates was in there, um, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. You have worked with so many amazing people that... Thank you, yeah. Yeah, it's fun to think back on it. What headphones do you wear when you record? I'm, I know this sounds like a weird question, but it occurred to me that you know, when you when you use headphones, are they changing the sound? And what can people, you know, what are some headphones that you would recommend to people that are recording in their studios? Well, I'll tell you, my, my recommendation to people is that you listen to some higher quality headphones and you pick a pair that you like and works for you mm-hmm. um, and that you learn it. So once you once you've got something that's good quality, and there are a number of you know good quality choices out there. Um, the The important thing is that you know it and you understand it and you get used to it, and because then you start, then you get that feedback process with how you're working. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you were to switch up the gear you worked on every single session, you'd probably mm-hmm. never really get to know any of it well enough to really know what you're doing. Um, but I ended up years ago finding a pair of biodynamic, um, DT seven seventies. And I think they're the 80 ohm versions and I love those. And so I've been, I had been using them in the studio. And then when I started the Bonnaroo studio, I used those. And that's, that's the only pair of headphones I've mixed on. I've had to buy a new pair in 15 years, but that's the only uh, brand of headphone I've used um, and there might even be better headphones out there, honestly, because there's there's a lot of choices. But uh, again, it's really important to just get used to something so that you have a sense of what to expect, you know. So what microphone, what are, what are some of your favorite microphones for your podcast, for example? By the way, your podcast is, is awesome. I want to really recommend that oh, to people. Tell us about your podcast and where they can go to listen in. Sure, yeah. Uh, so my podcast uh, is called Recording Studio Rockstars, and it is interviews with recording professionals um, to bring the listeners into the studio, talking about making records, talking about all the kind of um, how-to stuff, you know, what are some great techniques for recording different instruments, and then also, uh, you know, sharing stories of of challenges and failures and successes and, you know, advice for both people who are new to this and are looking for that inspiration and people who are, you know, lifelong veterans who just are, you know, um, learners, lifelong learners as well. Um, but, uh, so, so I've been doing that for, uh, since, since 2015. So it's been about four years Mm. now going on five years and over 200 interviews done now. It's been a, a weekly show and it's about, um, the show, you know, I went through the beginning stages of should how long should the show be? Should it be short? Should it be long? Should I edit it like a crazy? And I went through all those stumbles until I finally arrived at a, a system of doing interviews with people where I go unprepared and I let the interview be a live conversation. And at this point, I actually don't do any editing anymore. We we I have a technique where I can drop edit markers and and um remove something if it's a real clam or a mistake or something that's going to really screw up the show or if somebody you know I don't want to make a guest look bad for example right but uh, but it but other than that in a 2 hour interview it's mostly live and so the the podcast ended up getting longer and it's a weekly show so we're we're approaching um a million downloads now for the show that's and awesome. It's going great. <laughs> it's going great. And and uh and I've found a lot of the tools that work well for me. This mic that I'm talking to you on right now um is the same one that I've been using for the entire show for uh for doing Skype interviews. If I'm doing a Skype interview, I use this. It's called the Mic Tech Procast SST. Mm-hmm. And that's a Nashville microphone company. And what's great about it is it's just a USB that plugs into the computer. So Skype sees it no problem if I'm doing a Skype interview. And, I, and that's how I do my my audio um, interviews if they're over the internet. And then it has a built-in boom stand that comes right up. So the mic's always in just the right spot for me and a, and a heavy-weighted bass. And it, this is really important too. It has a mute button on it. <laughs> so while I'm doing this live interview... I can mute my mic while the while the speak or while my guest is talking, and then if I have to cough, cough or you know, 
make noises or scribble notes and they're going to be too loud. There won't be some noise that I have to edit out. That's awesome because I know if I'm shuffling papers or writing or I want to type, I have to edit that out of my track afterwards. And that's kind of annoying. So that's a good point. It's that post-production. Post-production will come back to bite you in the butt. It will. Talk to me about this famous MCI console. Do you still use it? And and I, I heard you talking about it in one of your interviews. Tell our listeners about it. Okay, cool. Great. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I have a studio here in Nashville, in East Nashville, Tennessee, called the Toy Box Studio. And it's a home studio that I built. It was it was my dream probably from about 1995, I think, to have a home studio. I just – that was a time when indie rock was really happening, alternative music, uh, the ability to start producing high-quality audio out of a out of your home with a home studio was really becoming a thing it really went with the culture of the kind of music that i loved working on and so finally in in 2005 um i i had actually before 20 2005 i had started a, a accumulating recording gear because that's what you do when you make records or you make movies or you do whatever you pretty much take all your money uh, this is until you have a family maybe and you have kids you take all your money and you just basically spend it on, you know, new cameras, new microphones, whatever it is. Absolutely. So I was, yeah, so I was already collecting things. And then in 2005, I, I started uh, taking my garage and converting it into a really usable, wonderful recording space. And then um, so for the past decade, I've had this studio called the Toy Box Studio. And when I did that, I also was in the habit of scouring eBay and looking for cool gear to pick up from places. And I was working with another band out in LA and we stumbled on this this image of a vintage console that was made by MCI, um, which was, uh, what, boy, what did that stand for? Music, something like Music Center Inc. or something like that. And um, it's a, it was a company founded by Jeep Harnett down in Florida. And it was actually the biggest, MCI was... I think the biggest pro audio company in the 70s going into the 80s that was U.S. based. So they were making um, large format mixing consoles. They were making multi-track analog tape machines and uh, some other stuff, you know. And so this MCI board that was listed on eBay, we're reading the history of it. And it's the same one that came out of Criteria Studios C. Um, where it had where it had had a home all through the 1970s down in Fort Lauderdale down down near Miami, Florida, and it's the same console that did Hotel California for the Eagles, <laughs> and the Bee Gees records Staying Alive and Saturday Night Fever and um, Average White Band and the soundtrack to Grease and it recorded Margaritaville. And uh, it recorded Eric Clapton, 461 Ocean Boulevard, which had I Shot the Sheriff on it, just like all these amazing records. And um, and so I actually uh, made an offer because it was sort of like a make an offer deal. And it and I didn't get it. (gasps) Oh, no. So, So then I got in touch with the sellers. It didn't actually sell on eBay, but I got in contact with them and I kept emailing them for a year and calling them. Until and they had decided that they were going to send it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was going to going to be uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame and be on display. And I convinced them to sell it to me instead of putting it in and just collecting dust in a museum. Uh, I convinced them to sell it to me. Now, of course, it collects dust here while I use it, but <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But I was able to uh, build my studio and bring in this amazing piece of history. And it was a custom-built mixing console. And it had all this kind of cool new technology for the time. So there's a whole routing matrix up at the time that are touch-sensitive buttons. You just go up and touch it, kind of like an electro-touch-sensitive elevator button. That's the way I think of it. Um, but But it's really incredible because because it's hand constructed when they when they made this it was a one of a kind prototype and um and they sort of have these metal strips where they punch it out and then there's like a little 
um, seeing eye, you know, with a light behind it, plexiglass thing that will light up when you touch it. But in the middle of each of those is a um, needed to have a piece of metal so it would make contact when you touch across your fingers touching the the metal strip and this little metal dot in the middle. And I saw one of them was was the dots were coming up at one point. And I went over and I was like, huh. And I looked at it and I grabbed it and I pulled it out. And it's a straight pin for sewing. Oh, <laughs> are you serious? Yeah. So it, That's it was just, awesome. Jeep is so creative. You know, he's thinking of this way to build this complex new technology. And he's not afraid to, you know, hammer out um, metal parts so that he could build this and, and just take a straight pin and just stick it right in there and make contact if that works. Uh, and so it's it's like that. You you know, you open the, the top up like a car hood. It just opens up and there's just all these wires and stuff running everywhere. But the really tricky thing was when it arrived, it has no schematics to it. Oh, no. So a, so a schematic is the it's the map. It's the, the roadmap that tells you where things are going and how they're connected and how, how it's all hooked up and how it works. So when something breaks, if you have a technician, gonna wanna, they're going to want to work on it. The first thing they do is say, well, show me the schematics. And then they'll just trace down the lines and, you know, figure out what the missing thing is. So that made it really, really challenging to um, sort of modify it or work on things that weren't working. Because it was like buying an old, you know, Model A car from somebody. You know, you have to fix it up. You have to do work on it yourself. But I just I just progressed along and, and figured out how to fix some things. And I found a tech here who just wasn't afraid of that stuff. He wasn't afraid to get in there and just like figure it out. Wow. And um, and we got some of the things fixed that needed fixing. And then other things that don't, we just work around them. Well, you're lucky you're in Nashville. You have people like that all around you, you know, that understand audio. I, when you were talking, I was envisioning these scenes in in the action movies where there's a bomb about to go off and you don't know which wire to cut. Right, exactly. Right? It kind of, <laughs> the red I'm, wire or the green wire? Yeah. Did you have why a moment? Are, why do they always look like Christmas? <laughs> there you go. That's crazy. Was there a moment where you said to yourself, oh my goodness, why did I buy this thing? <laughs> oh, I've, I've, you know, I've said that a number of times, but the, the answer is always the same. It's very clear. It's like, it sounds amazing. Um, yeah. I, I've done what I think people do in audio world. I think they do it in the filmmaking world, which is you integrate the old and the new. So mm. I have this old piece of technology that has all this wonderful character and sounds amazing, but I don't use it fully in the way it was intended. I use it to bring th sounds in through that, but then they go out and I'll patch them directly into my Pro Tools, which is, you know, the recording the audio on the computer. And then you get that combination. So you get the sound quality. Uh, you know, the microphones get to go through this great, cool sound and the mic preamps. But we still will work in the computer and get the whole computer sound. And then there's a whole section with faders where you can mix things. And if I want to... Um, Say I want to put up a bunch of mics on a drum set, but but mix it down through the console, and then you know just record two faders in two two channels into the computer. I can do that, that kind of thing. So, it it you just figure out new ways to work. That's really um, that's really great, and you try and take advantage of all the benefits of each you know old technology and new technology. So where does um, I I know that you're using a lot of OWC equipment. Where does that fit into to your workflow? Well, so um, the the place that OWC has come in super handy for me has been in storage. So using OWC solid-state drives in the computer here allows me to – I actually my, – my computer that I do all my pro recording on is still a 2009 Mac because that was when the Mac Pro – that was one of the last iterations of the Mac Pro, which was a, like a real Swiss Army knife uh, and a workhorse from from Macintosh. Uh, actually, nobody calls it Macintosh anymore, do they? <laughs> <laughs> that shows how long I've been. We're been dating ourselves. <laughs> so, yeah. are those the envoys? What do you have in there? SSDs. You put the envoys uh, in there, and you upgraded the the hard drives in your in your. Talk to me about yeah, how you I made all I that didn't work. I use the envoys in there. I think I have the Mercury. Oh, okay. Um, Pro six Gs. Okay inside uh the the uh mac pro 2009 
Uh, they call it the cheese grater, Mac. So what that did that was really remarkable is it transformed this this workstation into much more reliable. You know, you don't get you don't get the same kind of dropouts that you would get in Pro Tools recording audio in. Um, one of the places I really noticed a huge speed up was in editing. So if I'm doing something called vocal comping, where I might have 20 vocal tracks and I'm trying to flip through them as fast as I can on the screen while I'm working and listen to one, flip, listen to the next one, flip, listen to the next one, and then decide which one I want to go back to, listen to that one, and then I you know, make a move, copy it into the comp track, and move on to the next line. Um, that, that process could take you ages if it's not going well. Um, but it, you know, if I, if I have to go through a whole song and do that, uh, it's very intensive, but I can do it in an hour or something like that if I'm comping a vocal. Um, now, as soon as I put in the OWC, uh, um, the SSD drives, that made it so that the computer could keep up with my pace. Mm. And now yeah. and it just flips from one track to an, an, another instantaneously. It's really amazing. It's funny. Um I did the same thing to a laptop, a 2011 laptop. I replaced the hard drive with one of the OWC SSD drives, and it became a screamer. I was, I was amazed. So what are you using for storage? Um, well, I, I use those internally for the storage. Um, while I'm working, I'll just record the internal, those, those internal OWC SSD drives um, in my Mac, and then I'll move it offline for archiving. And I have a pair of uh, Mercury Elite Pros mm -hmm. that are external that, uh, that I can move things off to. I also have the um, Thunder Bay 4, and that's brand new. And so I'm actually going to be looking at ways to incorporate that into the, the studio system as well. Um, that one is Thunderbolt. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is it a Thunderbolt 2 or 3? I mean, that's a, you know, you think about these tiny little things that run across the room and they can make or break your workflow, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know I have a lot of Thunderbolt 3 that I'm using, but for example, the iMac that I'm using for this right now is Thunderbolt 2. So, and then I have other things that are the old Firewire, <laughs> the old Firewire. Yeah, so, yeah. Which so that you're in the same computer boat. probably use 800 Firewire, right? On that, on the yeah, old? this one has 800 FireWire, so yeah. I don't think I can hook this computer up to a Thunderbolt system. I, I don't think there's a way to do that, um, and I'm still researching it. However, what I do is, um, of course, I have a, a, a Mac Mini that does have Thunderbolt 2 in it, and I've got a you know a newer, um, and I also have a MacBook Pro 15 inch, which also ha um, can do. I think that can do Thunderbolt as well. Um, but what I've been using is the Mac Mini, and I hooked that up with a Thunderbolt 2 to Thunderbolt 3 adapter, and voila, the Thunder Bay works just fine off that. Mm -hmm. But you do have to carefully make sure that you have the right cables and that you have high-quality cables. Yeah, it was um, Larry O'Connor. I did an interview with him about a week ago, and we were talking about what's under the hood with USB-C, and a lot of companies are building these cables, and you don't know what you're getting. and. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, something will stop working, and what a lot of people don't realize is check your cables first, because sometimes it's not the machine, it's your cables. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so how did you um, get started with all of this? I'm really curious. When you were a little kid, what did you like to do? And tell me about young Liz Shaw. <laughs> well, so um, I grew up in a creative household for sure. My mom was a prolific oil painter. And uh, when I was a kid, you know, till six years old, we were living in Brooklyn outside New York. And so, you know, mom's taken me into all these crazy, kooky artist galleries and probably saw a lot more naked people when I was a kid <laughs> than I than most kids do at that Where age. Where in Brooklyn? <laughs> Where in Brooklyn? Um, we were in Brooklyn Heights. So we actually had an apartment that looked right out over that Esplanade walk, but walkway Wow. at one point. I'm sure it was... I'm sure it was a nice place to be at that point, but not like what it is now. You know, now uh, I don't even know if you can uh, afford to go up to the front door. <laughs> you know, but, um, it's interesting. We were in, um, we were in. I think it's called the Red Hook area. I'm not sure in the Italian section, and 
and I remember being upset because the family, when my grandfather died, they sold the brownstone, and I would have bought it. And had I bought it, I probably would have been set for life, but... Yeah. Yeah, so I understand. That was an amazing area. Very rich in terms of the culture and the food and the art galleries and the music. It must have been wonderful. Yeah, it was really cool. I don't know if you remember uh, Atlantic Avenue is sort of a main Mm -hmm. thoroughfare in Brooklyn. But we had an apartment there. And literally, you just leave our, our ground floor apartment walk up and around the block and then mom would show and, and run a gallery that was just on the other side of that block right on Atlantic Avenue. And so I could still find it today, you know, where it does it's not a gallery anymore, but you know, that was what, what it, growing up was for me. And so she always, you know, had us seeing music. And, um, I, I remember both mom and dad sitting down at the piano to play songs now and then. Um, and then years later, um, when both my parents were divorced and remarried, my mom and my stepdad also ran a movie theater. So we yeah. owned a movie theater later on up in Massachusetts when I was growing up. And it was one of these classic old art theaters. It was called the Nickelodeon. Um, and then it became the Festival Fine Arts Theater. And it had the the big, beautiful red curtains that needed to be opened at the beginning of the movie and uh, the red velvet seats and everything like that. And it's still a time capsule up there to, today. But that was my first job um, was learning how to be a film projectionist. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so I was, I was learning how to run carbon arc film projectors wow. and do changeovers and stuff like that and splice film together. Uh, meanwhile, you know, music w- at that point in my life was still just like having fun taking lessons or like I was just starting to get my first guitar and somebody was te- introducing me to Jimi Hendrix and I'm like, this is cool. Wow. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it was that combination of um, getting interested in music, uh, then going to school and college. I went to architecture school in St. Louis. Hmm. Um, so I wasn't interested enough in music yet to go to decide, hey, music's what I want to do. But I had been doing art and I was good at math and, and good at some of the tech stuff. And then, you know, having that introduction to the the mechanical side of things by being a projectionist and, you know, starting to want to learn how to fix my own car and things like that. All of that, um, all through college. Uh, I did finish my architecture. You know, I got an architecture degree, a, a bachelor's of arts in architecture, a little bit reluctantly. I sort of, you know, <laughs> I'm a I'm a good finisher, so I can finish something, you know, make it to the end. But uh, but all through college, the most fun thing I did was join some bands and play music in bands, and that just blew me away. I never had realized anything as fun as being in a rock band and getting up on stage and playing a show and having a great time and then, you know, hitting the road and going on tour and all that. And so it was after all that stuff. Um, I finished college. Uh, my, my buddy invited me to go backpacking in Europe. We were taking the trains around for a couple of my months. I was up in, um, London working in a pub, had gotten an apartment there, was dating a girl, uh, for a couple of weeks. And then my brother calls me up and he was in, I know this story is just going all over the place, but no, he, this is exactly <laughs> what I want to hear. This is fascinating. <laughs> so my brother called me, he was doing his junior year of college in Hong Kong. He was going to, um, ha- I think it was Hong Kong university. And, um, and he had just decided to pick the most far away obscure place he could think of. And he already, he, he sort of, got interested in music and saw what I was doing. And so at that point he had decided I'm going to major in music while I'm in school. So he's already studying piano and music and he's calling me in Hong Kong while I'm in London. And this is over payphones when it would take like, you know, 10 seconds to hear what the next person had to say. So very awkward conversations. But, you know, after, after a stretch of, you know, then I hear my brother's (laughs) voice. He's like, He's like, dude, I got a crazy request, man. I got a crazy idea. Um, I'm in a blues band right now. I'm playing drums in a blues band, and we've got regular gigs, and we need a guitar player. You want to come to Hong Kong and be our guitar player? <laughs> so then like, and then I get on. I'm like, dude, I'll be there next week. So, so I bought a, I, I 
quit two jobs in in London and I uh, left my apartment and I left my girlfriend of two weeks. Um, who, who was great though, Angela? You were you were great. Sorry, it didn't. Which didn't last. was a long term relationship back then, right? Yeah, exactly. Back then, it was a long term relationship, and I um, didn't have any money, so I just. But I did have an Amex card, so I put a plane ticket on my American Express, and I flew out to Hong Kong. My brother picked me up at the airport. I had absolutely no idea where I was going to stay, or how I was going to survive, or where I would live, or how I would make money, other than joining this band. Um, but we did that, and I played guitar with him. We had we started out having like five gigs a week playing in this band, so it was actually pretty great. And then somebody invited me to just come live at their apartment with him. Some uh, it was a, a professor who had a flat with extra rooms, and was a fan of our band. and And I was doing that. And uh, the point of the story here is that we got an opportunity to go into a recording studio um, and record a song that that the singer had written. It was kind of an anti-war song. And this is in 1991. So um, he's writing about the Gulf War. And um, and we went in and I'm sitting there in the studio. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot mm-hmm. of cool looking things in here and a lot of <laughs> blinking lights. And what's that thing with the faders that move up and down? What's that thing called? And what's that over there with the tape that rolls on giant reels from one side to the other? Oh, no. Was it an Ampex reel? Tell me it was an Ampex reel. It might have been an Ampex reel. Yeah, it might have been an Ampex. I don't know. I didn't know anything about anything at that point other than just playing some guitar and not all that well either. Um, and so I just thought to myself, I remember sitting in a studio, a recording studio in Hong Kong, I thought, I want to do this. When I go back to the to the States after this trip, I'm going to find some way to learn how to record and make records. And so I came back and, I, you know, I show up at home and my dad's, you know, welcoming me home. And he's also wondering, like, so what are you going to do now? You're going to be living back upstairs again? You're 23, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and I was like, no, dad, I'm going to go find a school for recording music and I'm going to learn how to make records. And, um, you know, I had had some experience through college of like, you know, working on a four track recorder and and recording band rehearsals and things like that. Um, so I, I already knew I was interested in it. But the idea of actually learning how to do it professionally was brand new to me. And and I um, rode away to uh, 50 different music schools because we didn't have internet back then. And then they just started sending me their flyers. And I found one that was in Tennessee called uh, Middle Tennessee State University. They had just built a brand new $20 million facility. And it was um, sort of like the biggest, baddest facility for the lowest, cheapest price. In fact, I even took it a step further. I moved to Nashville and lived here for a year, became an in-state residence, and then was able to get in-state tuition. And it literally cost me $700 a semester for full-time tuition to go to this brand new facility in college. Oh, my goodness. So I was right back into bachelor's program, and I went (laughs) went for another two and a half years and did that. And then um, that uh, is how I learned how to start making records. I forgot what the beginning question was. I just took you on my whole journey, but I, I was That's trying to That's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to know who you are as a person and what your creative journey was, you know. You mentioned that Ampex reel. When I first started out in radio many years ago, it was in a studio where we had the double reel-to-reel. We had to yeah. cue up our own sound, our own music. Oops, there's I hit the mic again. It's I'm getting excited. I'm talking it talking Italian. But yeah, I we didn't have engineers the way they do now. So you had to do all your own work. You had to the sliding pots and the big Ampex reels next to you and you're talking to people and you're putting stuff up on the reel. It was great. Oh, so this was, was this doing radio production or was it this It was radio. Music? No, it was radio at oh. AFN Stuttgart in Germany. Cool. And um, so, yeah, and it was it was fun back then, too, Lish, because we would leave each other recordings for the next shift. So somewhere there are all these amazing recordings of of us playing jokes on each other. And and uh, we have to we have to talk offline about some of that stuff. It was fun. I I, I dig that. You know, my first internship was actually at a production house in St. Louis. 
And so I was just sitting there with, um, you know, a, a, a voiceover engineer watching him work and he was so fast and, and he had a new digital system in there. There was the AMS audio file. I think it was what it was called. It was this, he had to wheel up. Have you ever been to the, the dentist or something and they'll wheel in this thing and they'll go down, like put on a strange goggle set and they'll lean over to this weirdo <laughs> computer. It was like that, but for audio, you know? Yeah. So how did you handle the analog to digital shift? Was it hard for you or, uh, you know, I, I still have, this sounds terrible, but I still miss analog music. Um, oh, totally. I mean, there's a sound and a, and a familiarity to um, a traditional way of recording on analog that we're never going to not miss. Okay, so I'm not wrong with that, right? I'm not being <laughs> being a little crazy. Yeah, I miss the sound. No, it's, it's, it's very it. cool. And I mean, analog... Uh, digital is only now just really catching up with the sound quality of analog. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it'll ever really all the way get there. Um, but it's, but it's pretty damn close now, you know, and, you know, especially, uh, consumer digital. Well, the very first thing you do is you just bump it all down to the cheapest, simplest format you can easily send to somebody over the internet and you lose all kinds of sound quality. Um, but for me, I, I actually embrace it. I, I find it's a fascinating challenge. And I think one of the things to always remember is when you're, when you're creating your own works is um, the moment you begin to make an excuse for, for the tools, just pause for a sec and say, mm. what if I pull up somebody else's movie right now on Netflix? Or what if I pull up somebody else's record right now on Spotify? Does it sound pretty awesome? okay, then I'll stop making excuses about how the new technology is the reason why I'm having trouble, you know? Mm -hmm. So you you graduated, and you um, how did you first get started with your own studio? Well, um, straight out of college, of recording college, um, one of the first things I did was get an internship. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, when I was in college, I moved to Nashville or, you know, down here to learn how to make records but I didn't even know anything about the music industry. I, I mean, I, I learned pretty quickly that this was the hub for country music, but I didn't come down here knowing that. So I wasn't interested in that. I didn't even realize that it was one of the three music cities, you know, like New York, Nashville, L.A. at the time. Um, so that's how clueless I was. So when I was doing recording, I thought like, well, I want to go back to where I had the most fun, which was St. Louis. I just want to go back there and go make records, you know. Um, but then I got an internship at a place called Woodland Studios here in Nashville. And during my internship, I started seeing real um, record makers coming in. So, for example, um, I, so I wasn't in the studio. My internship was a technical one and I was answering phones. But I was learning how to build the cabling and the wires and, and connect and build a studio, which is very, very valuable. And that actually helped me get my first gig right out of the studio, uh, right out of internship. But um, but I did get to meet all the people who would come through because I'm in the lobby the whole time. And I, that's where people like slow down and have conversations. So right off the bat, um, Daniel Lenoir came down to do Emmy Lou Harris's Wrecking Ball album. And I got to meet him and have conversations with him. And he even came in. I was in the, one of the other studios on downtime. And, they, you know, they would... As an intern, they would still give me a set of keys and let me bring in my own reel of tape and put it up and, you know, experiment and learn how to use the gear. So I was in there listening to one of my own songs and working on it. And Daniel Lenoir comes into the studio and he gives it a listen. You know, he's like, hey, it's pretty cool. You know, <laughs> hey, how you doing? And, uh, and then he told me, you know, his guitar tuning and he wrote it down for me on a piece of tape. And I remember I stuck it in the hardback cover of War and Peace and so somewhere, I don't know if I still have the book, I hope I do, but somewhere I've got um, Daniel Lenoir's guitar tuning written down for me on a piece of console tape and in a copy of War and Peace. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I hope you find the book. Yeah, thanks. That's awesome. So, so I interned there for, for a while and then they wanted me to, they wanted to hire me on, but the, the studio owner was like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come in at midnight, fix stuff till eight in the morning so that it's ready for the next session and go home. And I was like, Aww. I'm sorry, that's not the job for me. <laughs> so I turned it down. My first, my first job offer 
in a totally high-end pro studio, I actually turned down because it just didn't fit the vision of what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be in the studio, making records with people, doing the creative stuff, um, learning how to be a record producer. Um, of course, by turning down that job and starting my path to do that, the very next thing I did was deliver pizzas for six months. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're knocking down my theory. <laughs> See, I have this theory that if we follow what we really love, and it did, it came true for you. It just wasn't on the schedule you thought it was going to be on. You yeah, know, I but, mean, I didn't even know what schedule it was going to be on. But yeah. you, know, you got to, if you want to follow your own path, it, it will take you where you want to go. Uh, it's one of the things that I tell people, especially when I have new interns and students here, um, you know, Whatever you decide to do, it's probably going to work out. That's what I've found. If mm -hmm. you do it, it's probably going to work out. So make sure you're deciding what you want to do wisely with your eyes open, carefully, you know. Absolutely. I believe that, uh, and I always say, a joyous life well lived. That's our legacy. Yeah. Because that's how you find what you're meant to do. You have made so many musicians happy over the years with what you do. Are there some one or two memorable moments you can tell our audience about? Well, let's see. Um, yes, there are. Um, there, there are the versions of me being thrilled about a record that I have finished where I just love the record. Um, so, for example, there was a band called Twigs, and we did Twigs 2 here, and we used the old analog tape machine, and we just got great sounds, and their song arrangements were wacky and they were like eight minute long songs and there was no way they were going to make it on radio, but there was just, it was so much fun and it was so creative and we got to do things like break out the stylophone, um, which is a weird synthesizer where you, it has two pens on it and you touch the metal keys and that plays the notes. And, and uh, I think it was this, one of the sounds from space oddity, um, uh, David Bowie's record used a, a stylophone to get that. And we run it through distortion and tape echoes and the stuff that I just love to do being super, super creative. Um, but you know, that band moved off to Oklahoma city and I don't know if they're ever going to follow through with the band stuff. So there's those kind of moments where you, you have the thrill of create, of creating something that you really love. Um, but it may not, the, the the whole world might not know about it one day. And then there's also the thrill of, of getting an award where um, something comes and through, uh, for example, um, my friend Chad Brown was mixing uh, an album for Mike Ferris here uh, through my, through the, the MCI console. And then that album went on to win a Grammy. So now I was able to hang up a Grammy on the wall of the studio for uh for being the the owner of the studio so you have those kind of those kind of things um but i think you know early on one of the the big thrills for me too was when i finished playing music with my band the singer was a writer and he didn't he he loved being on the road i i loved being on the road too and it didn't look like the band was going to really continue so we weren't going to get to go make music on the road that way but the um he wanted to go and pick up stories from people all over. And I, and I hit the road with him. And then we started this thing through the nineties, um, that, uh, was that basically involved us hopping in a car and I'd throw a portable recording studio into the back seat, And then we would just drive off to places like Wyoming and New York and Boston and, and, um, North Carolina and the, the, you know, smoky mountains and find people and find stories and he would write about these people. I'd record their stories, their spoken word stories, which really mm -hmm. I think is the birth of me wanting to get into podcasting at the beginning. Um, and I'd archive their stories and we'd record people's music. I'd record, uh, you know, old time fiddle songs in, in a depot in no North Carolina. I recorded um, a Memphis blues legend Roscoe Gordon in his apartment in Queens, New York, up in one of those top high rises you know, with, with, um, yelling neighbors next door and stuff like that. And, um, we, and I recorded, uh, the poet laureate of Connecticut in, uh, just a little, a little office room 
um, and it was an it was a room in a publishing house in Willimantic, Connecticut. It was a revolutionary publishing house. So just the these really bizarre kind of locations, and then we would bring all that stuff back. And I ended up. It took me eight years to finish it, but I I completed a full album for Roscoe Gordon, and it turned out to be his posthumous. Um, and final record, uh, mm. and and then it got picked up by Dual Tone Records here. And I had musicians, all these great musicians. The the drummer from Wilco. I had string players. I had um, Jeff Coffin, who's a saxophone player who who tours with the Dave Matthews Band and Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. I had all these musicians playing on this record that just started from you know uh, an, an apartment room in Queens, New York. And um, and then the poems we did with Leo Cannell, and we brought them back. And then we would record. We'd take his r- r- um, red poem, him reading a piece from this epic poem he wrote about hitchh- hitchhiking across America as a you know basically a homeless um, drunk at that point in his life. <laughs> and then we would write a piece of music using the the words from the poem in the music. And we interspersed that across 29 poems and filled up a whole CD with this and then, you know, put that out ourselves. And there's not that many people in the world that have heard it, but it did get picked up by the BBC. And, you know, we got um, write-ups in other countries and stuff like that. So it was it was just a, one of those fascinating it, – it was, it was filmmaking for the mm-hmm. recording world, you know. So how do we hear this now? Where do we go to – to get this well i think available i think we're in a transition stage we had a site called poetry scores and Mm -hmm. that is the place to go find that stuff um i believe the roscoe gordon record it's called uh no dark in america and that is that's online that you can find on youtube you can find it on spotify and and that's still in print from uh from dual tone and then some of the other recordings you know we just sort of released to friends and family and stuff like that. Um, but we're still in the process. So that, that, that evolved until later we did more of that stuff. And then Chris started a nonprofit up in St. Louis called poetry scores and, um, and found some people up there cause he was living up there. I was down here and, um, and they took that the next step further and then they found filmmakers and they started making silent films around all this music and poetry and then showing that, and that got picked up by some different film festivals. Um, one of them uh, was a poet named Is Ihan from Turkey. And so then that film got a full write-up and picked up in a film festival in Turkey later on. So just just those kind of connections. Those are the things that really last with you through a lifetime, I think, is the stuff, the stuff that you start out with with your closest friends, if you can hang on to that through your entire career, whether you become super famous and then become not super famous, whatever, I feel like that's the stuff that really sticks with you. And that's the stuff you're meant to do. I, when I'm mentoring young people, I tell them to look around the room and I tell them that it's highly likely that the people that will end up being the most important to them in their lives are the people that they're working with and playing with now and they look at me like i'm a little crazy but some of them come back years later and they go you know what you were right so that's that's great to hear because that's the exact same thing i tell people yeah it's my my, the young people i'm just like look just look at all the stuff that's around you right now that is the key to your success yeah oh my goodness liz thank you so much for taking all this time with us uh, it's really nice to meet the man behind the amazing music and the amazing poetry with music behind it and uh, I wish you all the best with Toy Box Studios where do people go to learn more about you where do that you want them to go um, well you can go to the toyboxstudio.com and that'll take you to the website about my studio here um, if you want to check out my podcast, go to recordingstudiorockstars.com. Um, it's also on iTunes. Very easy to find if you just search Recording Studio Rockstars. You'll find it right there. Um, and Hey Bale. If you want to learn more about the Hey Bale, go to theheybalestudio.com. And that is actually a, uh, it's a page off my, my Toy Box Studio website. But that gives you a whole bunch of insight. And we've got our links to our YouTube videos there so you can check out some of these amazing bands we've worked with. 
Well, that's awesome. One word of caution, too. iTunes is going away. That makes me a little bit scared. Um, I'm not I'm not uh, hip to the news, so. Yeah, it's it's going away, and I think they're going to be moving people over to Apple Podcasts, and iTunes is telling us that all of our stuff is going to be safe. But, uh, yeah, we'll have to bring you back on, and, and if the location of anything changes, we'll make sure that we – we send people to your podcast, and, and everybody does need to listen to that because it's well, really thanks. pretty cool. I'll tell pretty everybody, cool. if if your listeners, uh, they're probably already podcast savvy if they're listening to you right, us right now, but, um, <laughs> but for anybody who's wondering how to get there, you just, if you're on your iPhone, you just, you know, swipe down on the screen, type in POD for podcast, mm-hmm. and the up pops the podcast app. Most people I tell this to, if they haven't done it already, they had no idea that a podcast app just lived on their iPhone waiting for them <laughs> to use it. So that's, that's you do it. And then just use the search uh, icon and you can find any of these shows. Yeah. And I understand that for people who are in business, who also want to listen that aren't on the iOS version of what we do, there's also a podcast app for Android. So you can yeah. subscribe to, to, uh, the rock stars podcast there i think it's wonderful thank you again thank you best of luck to you break a leg with everything and we'll be checking back in with you again because you're part of the owc radio family now too oh yeah i love those guys and it's a pleasure (laughs) to be here um owc has been wonderful and they've been a a wonderful help with recording studio rock stars in the toy box studio and the hay bale studio we just took all their drives down for that and it was like primo And we wouldn't be on OWC Radio without Larry O'Connor and all the troops at OWC. So thank you so much for sponsoring this. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with amazing people like Liz Shaw. This is Serena Catania, and I am signing off. And remember what I always tell you guys, get up off your chairs and go do something absolutely wonderful today. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And that's a wrap.